Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Take your Bibles, if you would, open it to 2 Kings chapter 12. 2 Kings chapter 12 in a Bible study that I've entitled, It's Important to Finish Well. It's important to finish well. In our last study, in our last chapter, we met this young King Joash, or here Jehoash, who was protected as an infant and presented as king at the ripe age of seven. Those of you with seven-year-olds in your house, can you imagine your seven-year-old being the president of the United States at seven? But that's God's will for Joash. And God was working behind the scenes to accomplish his will upon the throne of Judah. And we were reminded that we don't always see the hand of God in our lives. We don't always see how the pieces are being put together. We don't always understand every circumstance and every situation Every difficulty, every joy, we're unable with the information that we have to put the pieces together like a puzzle and be able to see what it is that God is doing. But he's working behind the scenes. The problem with God working behind the scenes often is that it frustrates us that we don't know exactly what he's doing. It leads to great frustration, and frustration will often lead to impatience. And impatience will lead to bad decisions if we choose not to wait on God. And that's exactly when impatience comes in, is when we choose not to wait on God. But to figure out, if we will, the picture and what the puzzle piece means, and God must be doing this, and he's probably doing that. And we learn with Joash, in God's perfect timing, Athaliah was removed, Baal worship was destroyed somewhat. And a recommitment to God and his word happened. But it took time. It took time of waiting and not knowing what was happening behind the scenes. And the longer that we wait in seeming darkness on a situation, the more tempted we are to fill that emptiness with our vain imaginations. And this must be what God is doing, or God has forgotten me, or God doesn't know what he's doing. And we become impatient with our mismatched, you know, we often speak about having wrong expectations as one another, and that's often the case. But have you ever considered that you might have wrong expectations of God? And when something doesn't happen your way, you get mad at God because you had the wrong expectation. It's so encouraging to think that God, while he's working behind the scenes, when he does begin to reveal his will and tides turn, how fast it seems. It makes all the waiting like, oh, I don't even know how long I was waiting because God's at work. And we're so excited to embrace the work of God when we see it happening. And I know waiting on him can seem like forever, but when he does act, it makes the waiting worth it. And it makes the waiting just so encouraging to look back and say, I am so happy God enabled me to wait by faith. Jot it down in Psalm 147, verse 15. It says that he sends out his command to the earth and his word runs very swiftly. 
His word runs very swiftly. And I love that. Pick up with me in verse 1 of 2 Kings chapter 12. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash, or in some translations, Joash, they're both the same, he became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. But the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Joash was a good king, and he's known as doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. That's a great description for any of our lives. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. As long as Jehoiada was giving him insight and direction. Because remember, you know, ruling as a seven-year-old, he wasn't making all the decisions. You know, cookies for everyone. That wasn't Joash. He had handlers. He had mature elders that were giving him advice. And under his authority as a proxy, Joash, being the rightful king, uh, was being uh, instructed and helped along the way. So as long as Jehoiada, Jehoiada, the priest instructed him, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And yet in verse 3, it's a discouraging verse because the word but here is not good. It's similar to the word nevertheless. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord as long as Jehoiada instructed him, but the high places were not taken away. And the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Idol worship was not completely destroyed. There was still compromise, still allowing different high places to be places of worship instead of the temple. Now remember Joash, when he was just seven years old, what came to rule, so most of his leadership was from Jehoiada. And yet part of their leadership was not to completely obey God. Let me show you something. Would you turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 15? Because this is always a problem for us, church. Incomplete obedience. With all the power of God residing within us, even as we were talking today as a staff, that God is working in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. With the very presence of the Holy Spirit in us. And we're born again. New creations in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Even with instruction in God's word, revelation from God, illumination by the Holy Spirit, the ability to understand, help from other believers, Bible study in our churches, radio stations teaching us, earbuds filling our heads with music that praises God. In every conceivable way, we're reminded of the faithfulness of God, and yet there's still incomplete obedience among us. A failure to go all the way. What some call incomplete obedience, others you might be familiar with incomplete obedience as compromise. Compromise. We see this so clearly in 1 Samuel chapter 15 in the life of King Saul, a few kings back. And in the life of King Saul, notice with me in verse 3, of 1 Samuel 15, the command is go and attack Amalek, utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them. And notice in verse 3 the key word, all. 
And if you look it up in context in the Hebrew and the Greek, it all almost always means some. No, 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 it's actually not. It actually, in context, almost always means all. And that's what it means here. Kill both man and woman, infant, nursing child, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. And so Saul gathered the people together, numbered them in Tele'im, 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men. And Saul came to the city of Amalek, and they wait in light, in, they wait lie in wait in the valley. Verse 9. But Saul and the people, circle this word, spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the best of the oxen and the best of the fatlings and the best of the lambs and all that was good. Did you guys notice that? And they were, what does your Bible say? Say it out loud. They were unwilling. They were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. Everything despised and worthless, everything that was assessed by King Saul, everything that was unwanted, everything that you wanted to put on the garage sale. By the way, garage sales trip me out, don't they? Trip you out? You spend all this money for stuff, and then you gather together, you put it in front of your garage, and you sell it for 20 cents. Everything that you put in a garage sale, King Saul destroyed. But everything he obsessed value on, he kept. He spared. Or the Bible says he was unwilling to utterly destroy. Everything he assessed value on. Everything that the people assessed value on and even under his leadership, which puts the contrast here of what do you value? What do you place value on, church? What's important to you? Because if you and I choose not to place a value on what God says over and above our own value statements, we're gonna make the same mistake King Saul did. He was given a command, very clear, which he very clearly disobeyed because he valued his own opinions and his own assessments over the value of exactly what God said to do. And it led him to compromise. He spared the king and all the best, the best, the best, everything that he thought was good. And that led him to unwillingly, to, he was unwilling to utterly destroy them. Here is the king of the flesh, Agag, spared by Saul. And King Saul decided to do things his own way. And those of you that studied with us, you know that this was another episode in his life of doing things his way. He did not wipe out the descendants of Amalek, or we know them commonly as the Amalekites. He did not wipe them out as he was told to do. They remained through the history of Israel, a thorn in their side with David and even on into the book of Esther because of this failure. And in serving God, serving God acceptably involves doing the will of God, not our own. We're to do the will of God the right way, in the right timing, with the right motives, with the right power source. God had given Saul another chance, and King Saul blew it again. Now, don't think of these in the life of King Saul as a bunch of random mistakes in his life. 
King Saul, through the random mistakes in his life, or what's perceived to be, had deep character flaws in his life. And it was through these repetitive, sinful mistakes in his life that revealed the character flaws that he was unwilling to bring to God for resolution. And Samuel, well, he knew of the sin of Saul even before they returned. And so pick up with me in verse 17. Well, really, in verse 14. Uh, Really, verse 10. (laughs) Now, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I've set up Saul as king, for he turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Let me just say, any true spiritual leader, when he's faced with spiritual and moral failure in his church, or moral failure in his family, or moral failure in the leadership, it always grieves a true spiritual leader. It's a grieving process. It's like, this isn't right. It's something has died in the church. It's not the heart of God. He rises up early in the morning, verse 12, to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel saying, Saul went to Carmel and indeed he set up a monument for himself. And he's gone around, passed by and gone down to Gilgal. And then Samuel went to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed are you of the Lord. By the way, We don't have time to develop this, but many times when a person sins, uh, even a spiritual leader sins, and he wants to cover up his sin, he sounds super spiritual. King Saul sounds super spiritual. Blessed are you, Samuel. Blessed are you in the name of the Lord. Man. And he says, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. True or false? False. False but he was convinced that he had. Verse 14, Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, oh, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord and the rest we've utterly destroyed. And Samuel said to Saul, shut up. Now it says be quiet, but... That would be the paraphrase on our modern day. Be quiet. And I tell you that the Lord said to me last night, and he said, speak on. And Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, when you were, not the, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission. Notice it said a mission, not, not just any mission, not few missions. He had a specific mission, a specific thing to do. It was very clear, utterly destroy the Amalekites, all of them, completely. That was a mission. And said, and he described it, destroy the sinners, fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not avo- obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil to do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission, not a mission, but the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Here he is explaining to Samuel, the prophet, who's already had a conversation with God, has what we would, what we would consider the manifestation of the discerning of spirits insight on a situation that's supernaturally revealed. In this case, Samuel had a conversation with God. God told him exactly what was going on. So here they are in this conversation, and look at what King Saul is doing. As he responds to defend himself, he says, 
I have a gag. I've completely obeyed God. I have a gag here, and I've destroyed the Amalekites. And here he is fully convinced in his own mind that he has obeyed God with the evidence ever before him, which is a warning to every one of us that the worst deception there is is self-deception. You know, as painful as it is for someone to lie to you or deceive you, and that is super painful, it's worse with self-deception. The evidence is, I, and he's admitting to the evidence, but not admitting to the sin. That's how far he is. And he blames the people, because that's always the case, it's someone else's fault. He says in verse 21, the people took of the plunder, the sheep, oxen, best of the things, which should have been utterly destroyed. Another statement of fact that he's using to defend his sinful compromise. So they, they should have utterly destroyed them, but you know, we're gonna sacrifice with them anyway in Gilgal. And here's what Samuel said. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is an iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. What is God's delight, sacrifice or obedience? It's always obedience. What does that mean in today's, uh, you know, in, what, in our thinking today? Well, you could be here praying, you could be here singing, you could be here studying the Bible, you could be here taking notes, you can be very involved in, in many spiritual activities. But if your spiritual activities are superseding your obedience to God, it's better for you to get up and leave. It would be better for this room to be empty, for the world to be filled with obedient Christians than fake compromising believers who put on a face that they're one thing but living disobedient lives. That's what it means today. It means that it's better to do what's in front of you thoroughly, obedient and unto the Lord, than to surround your life with spiritual activity, to surround your life with all kinds of outward actions where you have the appearance of godliness but you deny the power thereof. It's better to obey, church, than to go through sacrificial moments. It's better to obey than to outwardly appear that you're obeying. It's better to do the right thing. The important thing to know in the scriptures, and you'll find this all throughout, parallel passages, all over, this will find, you'll find this, this truth so many places where God is more interested in your obedience. He's more interested in your intimate relationship with him. He's more in, interested in you following him than you doing things for him. He's more concerned with who you are than what you do. He's more concerned for relationship than he is our rituals and our religious actions. It's who you are and not what we do. And the thing that God is interested in is our submission to his lordship and authority in our lives. He's interested in us. It says in Psalm 51, verse 16, in that psalm of repentance, he says, for you do not desire, this is 51, 16, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You don't delight in burnt offering, 
because the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. And God will be more pleased with your attitude and brokenness towards him than your offerings and your sacrifice. Too many people have tried to sort of bribe God with their activity and their actions and maybe even bribe themselves. They have that sense of the more I do good works, the more favor I will find with God. And, and yet, God isn't looking for the outward behavior to cover up the inward corruption. He just wants you. He desires us. He desires us to live for him and to live with him and to enjoy him and to talk to him and to receive from him and to be moved and motivated by him. Not to play outward compromising games. And perhaps it's from the Lord tonight that you take this section in 1 Samuel 15 and just meditate on the insights that King Saul reveals to us. Because if we come back to 2 Kings chapter 12, you notice this idea of he did right in the sight of the Lord but he let things continue on. He did the right in the sight of the Lord, but he allowed these high places. He stopped one form of false worship, but allowed three others. And it's not a good thing for us to be partially obedient. It's not a good thing for you to go, well, at least I tried, when at the same time you could have delivered. As I've often taught my kids as they were growing up and extended it to our church family. It's just a simple little thought. Trying is not doing. And so when you find yourself using the language of trying, you're just simply reflecting you aren't doing. And in a spiritual sense. I'm not speaking of the things where you've tried a new dish or you know, you've tried a, a new hobby. I'm speaking about your relationship with God. When you begin to use the word, hey, did you uh, do such and such? Well, I tried. It's better just to say, no, I didn't do it. No, I didn't complete it. Because the Lord wants full and complete obedience and he has given the power available to obey. He has given, you see, the moment that we respond to the command of God is the instantaneous moment of the power of God to fulfill that command. God's commands always come with his enablements. He doesn't give a command to you and me in the Bible and to expect us to fulfill it with our own power, our own strength, our own wisdom, our own knowledge, our own resources. He knows how bankrupt we are. The problem is, is we don't understand how bankrupt we are and how meager our resources are. And so here we are in verse 3, and pick up in verse 4 now. And Jehoash said to the priests, All the money of the dedicated gifts that are brought into the house of the Lord, each man's census money, each man's assessment money, and all the money that a man purposes in his heart to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priests take it themselves, each from his constituency, and let them repair the damages of the temple. Wherever any dilapidation is found, you read it yourself, um, broken down, it's dila, how do you say it? Dilapidation. That's, you get it right the first time. Now it was so, by the 23rd year, verse 6, King Jehoash, and that the priests had not repaired the damages of the temple. So King Jehoash 
called Jehoiada, the priest, and the other priests, and said to them, Why have you not repaired the damages of the temple? Now, therefore, don't take any more money from your constituency, but deliver it for the repairing of the damages of the temple. And the priests agreed that they would neither receive any more money from the people nor repair the damages of the temple. Then Jehoiada, the priest, took a chest and bored a hole in its lid and set it beside the altar on the right side as one comes into the house of the Lord. And the priest who kept the door put there all the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. So it was whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest that the king's scribe and the high priest came up and put it in bags and counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. Then they gave the money that which had been apportioned into the hands of those who did the work, who had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and they paid it out to the carpenters and the builders who worked on the house of the Lord. And to the masons, to the stone cutters, to buying timber and hewn stone to repair the damage of the house of the Lord, for all that was paid out to repair the temple. Verse 13. However, there were not made for the house of the Lord basins of silver, trimmers, sprinkling bowls, trumpets, any articles of gold, articles of silver from the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. But they gave that to the workmen, and they repaired the house of the Lord with it. Moreover, they did not require an account from the men whose hand they delivered the money to be paid to the workmen because they dealt faithfully. And the money from the trespass offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priest. So we get a little insight to, his, to the time uh, of his leadership. And we don't know what age he is at this point, but he's old enough to begin giving directions without Jehoiada. And he gives the order to divert the temple offerings to a new building project. And the people gave... And they got excited for it. And the builders were faithful. And it was a glorious time. And I have to say, this is such a neat time. Even though there was a little road bumps, you know, um, there were some bumps along the way. I have to say that when we look back on the faithfulness of our church over the years, for the 19 years we've been to, be, be been, we have been together, of all the building projects that we've done, all the little things we've done, all the big things that we've done, from, from, from you know, phone systems to building the building to adding this and adding lights and changing this. And I mean, all of those things, there, there has been a provision of God through his people and through you and me as we give of our faithful, give faithfully of our tithes and offerings and even give unto the building. There's, there's a faithful multiplication. You know, there'll be times when I'll come and I'll use the, defi- I'll use the, the words, I'll say, you know, isn't it great that the Lord gave us? And isn't, the la- isn't it great that the Lord did this? And isn't it great that where God guides, he provides? And sometimes using that language, people will hear me say that and they will be confused in thinking that something came to us for free. You know, the Lord gave it to us and we automatically associate giving with free. Or when the God guides, he provides and all of a sudden we were out in the parking lot and we had a prayer meeting holding hands on the parking lot and then we looked up and there was a big briefcase of money that just fell down right in front of us and we go, oh, the Lord has given us what we needed. No, the way that God provides is through the people in his church. Through the, those with the gift of giving, those that are obedient in the giving of tithes and offerings, those that have a heart for some project. Like maybe years ago, you were just anticipating uh, what was happening on this piece of dirt. 
and you didn't have any clue of what it was gonna be, you just knew something was gonna be here, and you had no idea what it possibly could be, and you dropped a $20 bill in the offering, or you sent a check in for $50, or whatever it might be, never really anticipating that the collective giving like we see here in 2 Kings would be used to build a building. It would be used to house literally now thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people not only being taught the word of God but but also being given the gospel and then it would be shouted abroad or spread abroad through technology like you would never think what is twenty dollars what is two hundred dollars what is two thousand dollars what is two million dollars it's all nothing to the Lord he owns it all the cattle on a thousand hills Like he owns it all, it all belongs to him. Anything in your bank account, anything in your pocket, anything in your car, everything you find under the cushions, it belongs to the Lord, all of it. And yet collectively the people of God, where God guides, he provides through his people. You see that all throughout the scriptures. God is the great provider, he provides to us as people. And and I can think back to all of the times, all of the administrators here, all of the the accountants that we've had, all of the every time we've had to write a check, every time a bill has come in, every time there's been a need, it's always been met by the Lord through his people. Now I'm sure that he could drop a briefcase out of the sky with a billion dollars in it. I'm sure he could. God can do whatever he wants. But the pattern that he's chosen to use is right here. You know, we're separated by the people of rebuilding the temple here. Uh, or repairing the temple, we're separated by them by thousands of years. But you know what? God's still doing the same thing. Because even as we're beginning to assess the wear and tear that this poor building gets on, I'm telling you, man, the kids use this building like you wouldn't believe. And you use this building like you wouldn't believe. And I mean, it's wear and tear, and that's the way it should be. This isn't a museum. This is the church of Jesus Christ that should be moving and mobilizing people and being used to its greatest potential. And yet, when we start to look at the repairs and we start to look at the needs, we're like, oh my, wow, how things have changed over the years. And so we begin to pray and say, hey, Lord, what are you going to do? And how do you want to match this? And, you know, it's always a glorious thing to see God move us forward. It's always a glorious thing to see God provide It's always a wonderful time where we're praying and seeking God for fresh things, for new things. It's always a great time as a church to be, have vision and desire that is beyond our ability because it causes us, like you you think of some of the difficulties that are in your home right now and you think of some of the difficulties that are with your kids right now and they're stretching you and it's beyond your ability and your kids are beyond, they don't even listen to you anymore. You know, when they were little, they they would listen to you. Just go to your room. Okay, well now go to your room. No. We're like, what, are you taking me on? Yeah. You know, and just like, what are you gonna do? It's beyond your ability. And what is God saying? Pray to me. God's not saying any of the things you're thinking about what you're going to do to that kid. He's not saying that. He's saying, I've allowed this limitation in your life. So you might call out to me and I'll tell you what's going on in your kid's heart. And I'll tell you what kind of discipline that they need. What kind of training that they need. So you might train your kids in the way that they should go. I know we don't often think that way because, man, we're so quick to get inflamed in the flesh. Argument in our marriage difficulty with our kids, loneliness in our singleness, and we're just so quick in the flesh. But the Lord is saying, I brought you to a limitation, so you cry out to me. 
I brought you to this bill that you can't pay to cry out to me. I've brought this disruption into your life so you might depend upon me. You become too comfortable and you've got everything in order the way that you want it. And even though God says I'm a God of decency and order, I'm also a God of faith. Faith comes first. Why? Because it's impossible to please God without faith. Hebrews chapter 11. And I'm so encouraged by, in verse 15, they didn't even require, it was so faithful, they didn't even require an accounting because the men were faithful. God is looking for faithful men and faithful women that will give, that will serve, that will surrender. It's always glorious to see what the Lord wants to do taking you forward. And even with all the progress, there's going to be resistance. All the progress, there will be warfare. The enemy will be there to push you back. You take a step forward and the enemy's right in your face. He's right there saying, you're going to take a step of faith? You're going to obey God? You're going to step into that arena? I'm going to unleash wickedness and evil all around you. The Bible says that Jesus himself sets before our church an open door. And he wants us to go through those doors trusting him, looking to him, following him caring more about what God thinks about us, not what people think. Not fearing man, which brings a snare, but fearing God and marching forward. What is that song? Where soldiers, is there like onward Christian soldier? Dun-da-dun-da-dun, I don't remember the words. But the Lord wants us to march forward, to take territory from the enemy, to preach the gospel, to speak out for the those that have no voice, to live lives of integrity, to step out in faith, giving God a chance to work in our lives, individually and as a church. Paul wrote to to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When the Lord opens a door, the enemy and enemies will be right there, ready to push back, confuse and confound And the opportunities are incredible, but so is the opposition. But we give the opposition too much credit. God is greater than the devil. He is greater than the opposition. He is more powerful than anything the devil will throw your way. And he will strengthen you and encourage you and empower you and give you the wisdom that you need to go through the open doors by faith. So go through them, church. Redeem the time. And a need's laid before you, whether it's from the church or it's from a neighbor, fulfill that need in Jesus' name. Open yourself to be used by God. Move forward. God is seeking a church, and I hope he finds it with us, to reach out, to go after the lost, to walk through the open doors aggressively, not passively, not just waiting around and whatever the Lord wants to do. What do you mean? What does God want to do? And when he reveals it, let's do it. And when the adversaries come, face them in Jesus' name. When the devil comes calling, ask Jesus to answer the phone. How's that one? I heard that somewhere. Got a much better response when I heard it. (laughs) In these last days, it just seems like it's the old weapons. It's the same old thing that the enemy uses against us. Pride, money, sexual sin pornography, deceit, and how we need to be ready and equipped. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, church, that you may be able to withstand 
in the evil day, having done all to stand. Verse 17. Nahaziel, the king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. So Haziel set his face to go up to Jerusalem. And Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the sacred things that his fathers, Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, kings of Judah, had dedicated, even his own sacred things, and all the gold found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and in the king's house, and sent them to Haziel, king of Syria. And he went away from Jerusalem. What a failure. Isn't it, man, it's just, man, progress. Forward, backwards, forward, backwards, forward, backwards. You don't give things that belong to the Lord to the enemy. You don't give the things that belong to the Lord to the enemy. You don't give your kids to the enemy. You don't give your money to the enemy. You don't give the possessions of a church to the enemy. Even the possessions, you are the church. You don't belong. Don't give your stuff away. Don't give your integrity away. Don't give your testimony away. You know, don't blow your testimony by giving it away in compromise. He made a great success. Man, let's rebuild the temple. Great failure. You know, it's to this that in verse 19, the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, or aren't they written in the book of the Chronicles, the kings of Judah? And when we get to Chronicles, a lot of it will be repetition, but we'll take different angles on it. And he, his servants arose and made a conspiracy and killed Joash in the house of Milo, which goes down to the Silla, and Jazakar, the son of Shimeath, and Jehozabad, the son of Shomer, his servants struck him, so he died, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. It's a pretty sad way to end, because it's important to finish well. Some commentators suggest that Joash never really had a strong faith and was just a compromiser through and through. You know, these verses... And here in the end, give strong uh, indication for that, except that the Lord said he did right in the sight of the Lord. So, you know, when you're reading commentaries and things and they make these suggestions, just make sure you let the Bible always trump the commentary. The Bible said that he did right in the sight of the Lord, so he wasn't a complete compromiser. So sometimes you're reading through and somebody's opinion on something, but the Bible is totally against that opinion. Choose the Bible, all right? Even in commentaries, choose the Bible. He's taken out by assassination, by betrayal. And he had such a great beginning, such a sad ending. And it just reminds us, man, no matter what our beginning is, let's end well. Let's end well. The finish line's right up ahead, church. It doesn't matter how old you are. With the way things are going, the coming of the Lord is at hand. The pieces of the puzzle prophetically are being put together. It is... I mean, every day I read, a, I read a news article and I just like, what a crazy world we live in. I mean, that's not even a strong enough world. This world is just upside down in their thinking. So anti-God. They're just so opposed to the things of God. They're just inventing evil upon evil upon evil upon evil. I just, it just blew on my mind. I have to minimize the type of news that I read because it's just crazy out of control against the things of God. And we would do well to steal our minds, to be, tra- to be renewed and transformed by the renewing of our minds. 
to know what God says and to be prepared. And like the, like the, the, the ten virgins, to be the five virgins that are ready and our, our lamps are trimmed and filled with oil and we are ready for the master's return. That we're not just kind of lazy and just like, well, you know, I'll get oil anytime and I'll have it ready. And, you know, when the master gets back, he'll make an exception for me. No, we need to be ready, church. The coming of the Lord is at hand. And the finish line is just up ahead. And that we might live in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. That he might get us through the finish line. And that we, even if we stumble, although a man falls seven times, he'll rise again. And maybe you're here today and you're on a stumble. You know, and you've stumbled. And just know that the Lord is going to get you up. Trust him. The quickest way out of difficulty is repentance. You know, we often talk about how easy it is to make a bad decision and just plunge into sin. But let me tell you something. You can easily just as quickly repent and you'll be back. And the Lord will receive you. So, so many of us, the finish line is right up ahead. And so let's be prepared and be ready and lay aside those weights and the sin that so easily trips us up and not be concerned with the affairs of this life, but like a good soldier fighting arm in arm. So Father, we want to end well. It doesn't really matter how we started. We're all in the race. And we just want to end well, God. We recognize you have great and open doors before us and we get bogged down with all the minutia and all the difficulties, but God, you're calling us to higher levels of commitment, higher level of service, higher levels of love and surrender, higher levels of, of trust and obedience, higher levels of faithfulness and rely, relying upon your strength, higher levels of surrender and obedience, Lord, as we, one, as we, as we desire to run our race well. Thank you, God for working in us to will and to do for your good pleasure. Thank you, God, for being faithful even when we're faithless. Thank you, God, for not only saving us, but sanctifying us day by day and moment by moment. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.